Hello and welcome to Fantastic Fights, the podcast about a middle-aged man playing adventure game books out loud on the internet. My name is Hieronymus J. Doom and this episode is part two of my epic quest to get to the end of Creature of Havoc, Steve Jackson's gloriously experimental riff on classic role-playing tropes. The first episode involved a near-mindless monster, me, stumbling around a dungeon in charge of another near-mindless monster. I died during the course of that adventure, inevitably, so I wanted the chance to see what the second half of the game had to offer. We'll be coming in right in the middle of the action, so you probably ought to listen to the first episode if you want it to make sense. Or maybe you want to get experimental with your podcast listening as well, in which case that's fine, I'm not the boss of you. Before we get into that, there's a few brief notices. Uh, The first is that I have a new patron to thank. Yes, my undying gratitude goes out to Kenneth for putting their hand in their pocket to support or enable my ongoing midlife crisis. You can do the same by going to patreon.com hjdoom and pledging as little as a single English pound or local equivalent. Any and all support is deeply appreciated. It's a particularly good time to get in on the action since I've just released a new reward in the form of my brand's new role-playing game, Percent Killbot. Anyone who supports me gets a copy of my gamebook, House of the Unquiet Dead, my wordlessly stupid D&D retro hack, Dungeon and Daggers, and now a brand new collaborative role-playing game for two players about cyborg soldiers coming back from the war and trying to adjust to civilian life. If you've ever wanted to roleplay a person with lasers for hands, having a nervous breakdown at a children's birthday party, I can confidently claim this is the game you've been waiting for. If you are one of my patrons and you signed up with an email you don't check very often, do please have a look at your email. You should have an email from me there with a game attached. If not, get in touch with hjdoomretrofun, all one word, at gmail.com. Okay, so let's do a little recap of the first half of Creature of Havoc and then get right into listening to me screw up the second half as much or perhaps even more than the first. The story so far. I woke up with a bad case of being a giant monster. It's like a hangover, but much worse. I killed a few adventurers, quite a few adventurers if I'm honest, as I stumbled around the dungeon and finally managed to learn how to decode the nonsense language. It's really clever, involving vowel substitutions and the spaces not actually being part of the word. You can sort of read it once you get your eye in. It's clever, but also a nightmare for a dyslexic who struggles with that sort of thing. I also learned that the adventurers were sent to try and recover the very vapours I have been so profligately huffing. Uh, sorry, I guess. I've done a bunch of fighting, but I have ultimately emerged from the dungeon more or less intact, with a skill of 12, a stamina of 24, and a luck reduced to 10 from a starting luck of 11. It was one of those wonderful characters that you sometimes get. It turns out that I was quite close to the end of the dungeon on the recorded playthrough, with only an evil lich and an avaricious guard standing between me and freedom. The lich is a damp squib with the right magic item, but the secret final boss of the dungeon turns out to be... (gasps) A door! If you do what I did and kill the guard on general principles, then you'll find that your thick sausage fingers are too fat to pick up the key for the door out of the dungeon. 
Trying to kick it down will just send you into a loop of losing stamina one point at a time. So you can't even win the fight against the door and it's deeply frustrating. However, once you've bribed your way past the guard with the magic pendant that found secret passages that you get really early on, then you are good to go. I've still got a crystal club, which ought to be useful. I've been lightly dusted with magic elven dust, which means I assume I sparkle like Edward Cullen if he was a 400-pound gorilla monster with an attitude problem. I've also learned that I'm a test subject intended initially for work in the mines, but that I can make contact with another test subject who has the legionnaire number 29, and that test subject might tell me something useful in the testing grounds. I still don't have a name, and that makes me sad. So recap done, let's delve right back into Creature of Havoc as we take our first steps outside the dungeon. Don't forget, there's a nice little special rule whereby you can death blow things if you roll a double in combat. The guard draws a bunch of keys out of his pocket and opens the metal door to let you through. You grunt in thanks and begin climbing the steps. At the top, you find yourself in a cold, stone-walled room with a large stone platform in its centre. Carvings and symbols decorate the platform, which is lit up by a beam of light from a crack in the ceiling. You edge around the room until you reach a door which you shove open. The sight which greets you makes your eyes open wide. Space! You have escaped from the dungeon and have emerged into cool night air. Slowly, you survey the landscape, your mind filled with wonder at the space all around. You appear to be standing in an open field in which stones have been fixed in regular rows. Some lie down, flat on the ground, and some are standing up. To your left, near the edge of this field, is a large building with a tall, pointed roof. On the other side, to the right, is a wood, and a path leads straight into the wood from where you are now. So I think we're in a churchyard. Or a temple yard, I guess, in a fantasy world. They seem to be like gravestones next to a church is very much the ambience. Overhead, a huge white orb hangs in the sky, giving some light. But this light dwindles when great smoky masses drift in front of it. You are overawed by your new environment. Would you like to investigate some of the stones set into the ground around you? Would you like to look around the old building? Or would you like to leave this area along the path into the woods. I will go and look at the stones, which I assume are gravestones. I actually really like a churchyard, and I really like reading gravestones, because, well, most of them just give you the bare minimum of information. Sometimes you can find out something really exciting and fascinating about some little piece of social history. There's one in Northampton which details the death of a police officer in the late 19th century, in the act of apprehending a villain. And that's got a lot more narrative than you'd expect from a uh, a gravestone. And I, I found that kind of thing fascinating. So anyway, we are going to have a look at the stones. They turn out to be like mile markers or what have you. I'm going to look really stupid. A bird's cry pierces the night air as you step through the mysterious stones, looking for anything unusual. You pause by a tall, smooth black stone and study the writing on it. Here lies Sogarth Foulblade, 
smitten in the scullyweed plague, leaving good wife Melinia and sons Chard and Seth. May Clarician take his soul. See, that's a nice bit of detail. Not far from this is an ornate stone covered in small carvings of winged creatures and fierce-looking gargoyles. Its inscription is in smaller print and you must step right up to read it. The ground is cursed where I, Donog Hagdurag, lie. Let no man or beast dare set foot on my grave lest he feel my wrath and the ground open up to disembowel his miserable body. Donag Hadarag, necromancer of coven. Not often you get a threat on a gravestone in the UK, as a, as a rule. Don't know, maybe that's what I'm going to have on my gravestone when I die. Some kind of dire imprecation against those who come after me. That's assuming that uh, I get buried at all and not just eaten by starving young people hunting for food in the post-apocalyptic wasteland. You look to the ground and see your own foot planted squarely on the centre of his grave. Will you wait to see whether or not the threat is an idle boast or turn and find somewhere to hide? I mean, I'm just going to have to wait and see because this is an awesome little vignette. You turn to look at a gravestone, keeping one eye on the grave of Donag Hagdrag and listening for warning signs. The next grave is that of a woman whose inscription reads, here lies Sophia White Rose. Like a rosebud, she blossomed with beauty. But alas, she died entwined in her own thorns. You puzzle over the words. But then a scraping sound distracts you. You look back towards the previous gravestone and a shiver runs down your back. A withered hand is pushing the stone aside. And then you hear the same sound behind you, and again to your left as scraggly limbs slowly push gravestones aside and long dead bodies crawl out. There is a picture of some long dead bodies clambering out of the grave. I really like it. There's tremendous use of light and dark. The uh, gravestones are kind of quite white, and the zombie creatures are... Yeah, very grim. They're almost skeletal. They remind me a bit of the uh, the monsters in Tombs of the Blind Dead. If anyone else is a fan of that series, that's a niche shout-out right there. You kick the nearest gravestone closed. It slides back into position, severing the protruding forelimb. And a muffled expression of pain comes from the undead creature below. Four of the living corpses rise from their graves together and surround you. You must fight them all together. So we've got four zombies, uh, skill six, stamina seven, skill seven and stamina seven, skill six, stamina six, skill seven, stamina six, with my skill of 12. I'm hoping this will not be too much of a nightmare, but four on one is pretty hardcore. So I am prepared to be losing quite a bit of stamina, potentially. I'm going to roll... Some dice. I have defeated the zombies. I took four points of damage, reducing my stamina to 20. It's been a while since I had a character with absolutely maxed out skill. And yeah, it does make a big difference. I got in two death blows as well. First zombie I death blowed on the very first round, which was brilliant and really, I think, helped tip the balance of the fight in my favour. So yeah. Took a while, but uh, a nice little fight to open the episode with. Undead creatures do not die. 
After the battle, their battered remains slink back into the graves from which they came, and the stones shift back into position. Perhaps you have won this battle, or perhaps they are simply regenerating within their graves. Either way, you decide not to wait to find out. Will you take the path to the east into the wood, or do you want to try looking around the rest of the graveyard for anything unusual? Well, I'm not done with this graveyard yet, so we'll have a bit of a look around. There are a number of crypts around, but you choose to enter one which is larger than the others. You slowly push the door open, and it creaks on rusty hinges. The room inside is dark and empty, except for the great stone tomb standing in the centre of the room. Your claws clatter along its surface as you walk around studying it. Suddenly another sound catches your attention. The sound of slow, shuffling feet coming from outside the crypt. You open the door and just as quickly slam it shut again. Advancing towards you from the gravestones with staring, lifeless faces are a dozen living corpses. No doubt they are intent on ridding themselves of this intruder. Your eyes dart round the crypt for a hiding place, but there is none. In desperation you grasp the lid of the tomb and heave it aside. It is empty, but something is happening on the floor of the tomb. Your removing the lid seems to have triggered a secret catch, and the base of the tomb has begun to rumble. It slowly slides aside to reveal a narrow staircase leading downwards. Do you wish to see where the staircase leads, or would you rather take your chance with the army of zombies arriving at the door? I think twelve zombies is probably beyond even a giant gorilla monster's abilities to handle. Slightly annoying to be going from one dungeon-like location to another, but hey-ho, that's life. Uh, I think we're going to go and see what's in the bottom of this dungeon. You follow the staircase downwards, your huge feet desperately trying to maintain their balance on the narrow stairs. Test your luck. It does have to be said that there are a number of points in the earlier part of the adventure where you can die from basically having two left feet. So let's hope this isn't another one of those. Good lord, I failed. That's an 11. Luck of 10. I have failed. That's unfortunate. The creatures are now at the door of the crypt and entering. You hurry off down the staircase. Pebbles, rocks and even parts of bodies rain down on you as you descend the stairs, thrown by the hideous creatures on the surface. You try a little too hard to get away from them quickly. Your foot slips on a loose rock and you tumble over and over down the stairs. Unfortunately for you, this staircase has been designed for unwanted visitors. At the bottom of the stairs, a dozen sharp iron spikes protrude from the ground. There is nothing you can do to prevent yourself landing squarely in the centre of the spikes. Your death is instantaneous. Okay, so... um. That is a swift, swift death. Obviously, after that ignominiously early exit, it's far too soon for me to be calling it a day. So I will be, of course, invoking the sausagey finger bookmark rule. And we'll go back to where we had defeated the four undead creatures. And instead of looking around the rest of the graveyard like an absolute idiot, we'll take the path east into the wood. Not least because I've just checked and choosing to try and tackle the zombies is also an instant death. So very much caught between a stake and a dead place. 
The path takes you along towards the trees. You pass a sign on the edge of the forest which reads, Not Oak Wood, with a K. Not that it's not an oak wood, that it is a not oak wood, if you follow me. Once in the wood, the going is more difficult as the light is obscured by the tall trees. Do you want to rest by one of the trees or would you prefer to keep going? I think I will have a little rest. After a few moments, you find it uh, difficult to keep your eyes open and your head begins to nod. Ooh, I made myself yawn. Mm. Resistance is useless. You roll over on the ground and fall soundly asleep. But your sleep is disturbed by dreams of dark creatures, humans with sharp swords and magical encounters. In the centre of your dream is yourself, understanding nothing, forever wondering where you are and why. In one dream you are running from a hideous figure who is pursuing you in a ship which flies. Uh, a flying ship was mentioned in the rumours at the start of this book. The faster you try and escape, the easier it is for the ship to catch up to you. Leering sadistically, the figure drops a net over you. You crash to the ground, trapped in the net, trying desperately to escape. You wake up with a start, arms flailing madly. A breeze has blown the branch of an oak into you so that its leaves cover your face and chest. You breathe a sigh of relief and pick yourself up. Your eyes narrow to slits as they adjust to a new experience for you. Daylight. You may add four stamina points for the rest, and then you set off once more through the wood. So stamina now back to 24. You continue east until you reach a junction, where another path joins from the north. There is a signpost at the junction. The sign pointing northwards reads, Coven. To the south, the sign reads, Bilgewater, though no path runs that way. To the east, the sign reads, Testing Grounds. Which way do you wish to go? North, south, or east? So, um, Bilgewater is the foul-smelling river that we encountered on several occasions and almost fell into during the dungeon portion of the adventure. It's not a salubrious locale by any stretch of the imagination. So I'm going to discount that. I vaguely remember there being some clue about Coven at some point. I cannot, in all honesty, remember whether it was a positive clue or a negative clue. But I do know there is a Legionnaire number 29 somewhere at the testing grounds. So that is the direction I am going to go. You follow the trail until you reach the top of a hill. The trail winds down into a valley. You pick your way cautiously down and reach the bottom safely. But as you pause to rest for a moment, you are startled by a rustling in the bushes behind you. You swing round just in time to avoid the sharp blade of an axe, which misses your face by inches. You growl deep down in your throat and turn to face the tall woodcutter who has attacked. Resolve this combat. The woodcutter has a skill of eight and a stamina of nine. There is a picture of him. It is absolutely fine. He's a big, angry-looking fellow with furs and a very big axe. He's got a medallion or pendant of some sort, which I might be investigating once I've done away with him. And with a skill of eight and a stamina of nine, I'm not anticipating too many problems, as I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the woodcutter. 
He did two points of damage to me, reducing my stamina to 22, and I death blowed him on the very last round of combat, which is always a bit disappointing. It's like wasting sixes. It just doesn't sit well with the uh, the role player in me. You can see ahead that a river runs through the valley, and you make your way to its banks. As you get closer to the water, you notice that the vegetation is changing. The lush green colour of the trees and bushes higher up the valley is replaced by a darker olive colour, and the plants down here are decidedly less healthy. Ah, pollution. That'll be the bilge water then. Spindly branches reach out at unnatural angles as if pleading for mercy. On the ground, many of the roots of the contorted trees are exposed and have been eaten away. The surrounding bushes are often leafless, and the effect is rather eerie. A faint smell hangs in the air. You continue down towards the river. The closer you get, the stronger the smell becomes, until eventually it's overpowering. The stench seems to come from the river itself, and when you arrive at its banks you can see why. Indescribable filth and excrement is being carried along by the foul waters. But as the only path runs along the banks, you will have to choose. Will you follow the river upstream or downstream? Or will you leave the path and make your way through the undergrowth? So I'm going to take a guess that the filth and excrement is coming from the testing grounds. I'm sure that the various giant monstrosities along the same lines as I am are using it as a latrine. So if I want to find the source of the contamination, I do need to go upstream. So that's what I'm going to do. Unless the river was made foul by going through Xander and Mars dungeon. That is also a possibility. But anyway, I've decided now. You follow the river up the valley until you reach a point where it comes out of a cave in the side of the hill. There is no path into the cave, just the river. If you want to turn around and follow the river downstream, you can. Otherwise, you can either jump into the river, hmm, no, and follow it into the cave, or forget about the river and stomp off through the undergrowth. I guess we're going downstream then. You pick your way along the riverbank, following it downstream. The going is not easy. At one point, you must climb carefully down a rocky cliff, where the river passes over a waterfall. Eventually, you reach a calm pool where the waters slow and spread over a wide expanse. Steam rises lazily from the pungent waters, and you halt in your tracks as the smell, now stronger than ever, reaches you. Through the steamy mist, you can catch a glimpse of a creature further along the bank. It stands tall on four legs and is drinking contentedly from the foul water. Blech. You creep closer, keeping hidden in the bushes. The creature stands on long cloven feet. Its skin is covered in tough scales and its tail ends in a spiky ball. Its head is sleek and serpent-like with long, thin tongue that darts in and out as it drinks from the river. It has not noticed you. Will you creep round the creature so as not to disturb it? Will you attack it in the hope of gaining a much-needed meal or approach it gently, trying to keep it calm and then mount it? There is a picture of the creature it does look like a kind of noble lizard horse, is the best way of describing it. It's really nice, actually, the picture. Very, very evocative. I think um, Alan Langford has a real gift for lizardy things. Uh, something that came up in Island of the Lizard King as well. He's really good at that sort of thing. 
So yeah, playing to his strengths looks great. So the obvious thing to do is to kill it and eat it because we're not good at the old making friends thing. But the idea of me, who weighs most of a ton, clambering on the back of this flighty lizard horse is just too funny. So that's what I'm going to try and do. You creep forward until you are quite close to the creature. As you stand there motionless, patiently waiting for the right moment, a bird flutters down to land on a bush in front of you. You must now decide how you will approach the Ophidiotaur. The Ophidiotaur that you have encountered. So uh, it's a skill test and we need to get below our skill of 12. Shouldn't be too bad. Eight, well below, but not so far below it feels like a waste. Thinking quickly, you snatch the bird from the branch. It flutters in your hands, but a sharp squeeze silences it. Oh, I like birds. The Ophidiator hears the rustling and turns to see what is happening. You step slowly from the undergrowth, holding out the bird towards it as an offering. At first, the creature is startled by your arrival, but your slow approach seems to reassure it. You hold the bird closer, and its tongue darts out to snatch the food from you. You calm it down for a short time, then swing yourself onto its back. It shrugs and snorts for a moment or two, but its protests are few, and you realise that you now have a steed. Awesome. After allowing the Ophidiator to drink from the river, you grasp its neck with your wide fingers and dig your heels into its haunches. Without warning, the creature turns and gallops off into the undergrowth. Its strong legs take you faster and faster through the woods. Branches catch your legs and arms while you are hugging the Ophidiator's neck tightly for balance and to protect your head. The journey continues for a seemingly endless time until you are so sore from the riding that you wish the beast would throw you off. But finally you arrive at a clearing where the creature pulls up and stops. With great relief you step down from its back and survey the area while your steed gallops back into the woods. Should have known you can't trust horses, even things that are only part horse. Can't trust them, can't trust them at all. You step back into the bushes and search the clearing suspiciously. All is quiet until a shrill cry breaks the silence. This is followed by the sounds of a struggle, and finally three figures tumble into the clearing from the undergrowth, locked in combat. Two rough-set brigands are grappling with another creature. The brigands are burly humans with leather breastplates and boots. The belts around their waists hold throwing knives, but they are using their bare fists in this battle. Their adversary is thin and nimble with long white hair and angular features. Looks like we found us an elf. He wears a silky robe and appears to be unarmed. It's an elven wizard, apparently. He is putting up a brave fight, but he's clearly losing the battle as blow after blow from the brigands thuds into his stomach, ribs and head. He is crying out for help. Will you help him? I suppose I will. There is a picture of these two toughs giving the elfy-looking fellow a good pummeling. Uh, it's got a lot of dynamism to it. It's kind of breaking out the frame slightly, which is always nice. And uh, the faces are sort of contorted in rage and pain. Yeah, very nice, very nice. The artwork continuing to be of a high standard. So we will help because I know that 
The vapours that seem to be such an important feature of this plot are somewhat associated with the elves. Really nice variety of uh, combats in this second half so far. As you crash out of the bushes into the clearing, the battle halts temporarily and all three combatants stare incredulously at you. You must resolve your battle with the brigands who will fight you together. The thin creature is too badly beaten to be of any help and drops to the ground moaning. Which is also my go-to move in any actual fight, although I would be shrieking, not the face, not the face. The first brigand has a skill of 8 and a stamina of 9. The second brigand has a skill of 8 and a stamina of 7. This shouldn't be too challenging, I hope. I'm going to roll some dice. Both brigands killed, not a scratch on me. It does occur to me that having saved this guy, I don't think I can actually talk to him. Apparently I can. Exhausted from your battle, your attentions turn to the white-haired creature lying moaning on the ground. Seeing that the battle is over and that you mean him no harm, he turns towards you. As he speaks to you, he winces in pain from his beatings. I offer you oh, my thanks for your aid. My name is... Uh, oh, is Whiteleaf. I am uh, an elf. Home for me <coughs> is the village of... Hethel Amane. He turns over onto his back and continues. Oh, oh, that's better. I know these words well. Perhaps I can be of uh, service to you in return. What would you like him to tell you? Anything he knows about Stittlewode? Now, I did hear mention of Stittlewode earlier in the adventure, off mic. What he knows about the galley keep which I don't know anything about or more about himself, but I will ask him about Stittlewode. Oh, Stittlewode is not far from here, he starts. It's uh, near the Rainbow Ponds. I would say that it's uh, two days' journey from here. Travel in an easterly direction, keeping the setting sun behind you. If you manage to find the uh, vicinity of the village, do not look for it on the surface. It has remained hidden for so long because it is uh, under the ground. More than this... I may not tell. He picks himself up and stretches painfully. After dusting off his robes, he bids you good day and sets off. You watch him disappear. So, more underground shenanigans, potentially. A path leads from the clearing to the north, although you can see that it soon forks left and right. Will you go east or west? I will go east, following the Brummy Elves' directions. You follow the path through the woods until you reach a clearing. Here there is a small pond. The water is not stagnant as a small stream leads from it deeper into the woods. And it is a favourite watering hole for the woodland birds, although they flit high up into the branches when you arrive. The water shines with a silver sheen and you can see quite clearly the reflections of the treetops and clouds. Will you rest here beside the pond and perhaps drink from it? Or would you prefer to pass it by and continue along the path? If I rest here, I'm going to see my own face and be made sad. And who can resist seeing your own face and being made sad? I mean, it's basically what happens once you're over 40, to be fair. Do you want to simply rest by the pond? Would you like to drink from the pond? Or would you like to bathe in the pond? Uh, I'll have a bath, thanks. Um, that is the stupidest thing I think you could do. So that is the one I'm going to do. 
I appreciate being given really, really silly options. You wade slowly into the pond and relax in its cool, refreshing water. When you emerge from the water, you feel much better and may add two stamina points. Returns me to 24 stamina. When you look down at yourself, you are astonished to see that your scales are no longer their usual dark browny green colour, but are covered in a glistening layer of milky liquid which is drying to leave a silvery sheen. Although you try to brush it off, it will not smear, much to your annoyance. But in fact, this silvery layer is a coating of a magical material that will act as thin armour. While you are covered in the silvery layer, you may add one to your skill score. But it will be washed off if you bathe in clear water. So, I would be on skill 13, but you can never have skill above your starting score. Even though every book is written as though you can have skill above your starting score. So we stay on skill 12, but must be careful not to wash. Teenager rules apply. I suppose if I were to lose some skill, I could then retroactively claim the silvery skin bonus. I don't think that would be against the letter of the rules. So I guess there is an advantage to it. It gives me a point of skill to play with. You leave the glistening pond and continue along the path. It winds through the trees until you eventually reach a fork where you may continue either to your left or to your right. In the centre of the fork, a pole has been fixed into the ground and hanging from the pole by his wrists is a sight which widens your eyes. Half dead from exposure but looking plump and tasty is a hobbit. Mouth-watering, you rush up to the little creature. As he hears your footsteps, he opens his eyes slowly. No, he moans, guessing that your intentions do not involve greeting him warmly. Please let me down and leave me be. I can tell you where both of these paths lead and how to avoid the dangers along them. You are hungry and the sight of this tasty morsel is an unexpected treat. Will you cut him down and make a meal of him? Or will you cut him down, listen to what he has to say about the paths ahead and then release him? Sad that there's no option to cut him down, listen to him and then eat him. I don't trust hobbits, especially not hobbits who are this posh, so I'm going to eat him. You ignore the pleas of the miserable little creature. After chewing through the rope to cut him down, you put him out of his misery and feast ravenously on his tasty flesh. I mean, someone put him on that stick for a good reason. All I've done really is just hasten his end. I'm a humanitarian or a hobbitarian, I guess in both senses of the word. Restore your stamina to its initial level, which is where it already is. You want to go left or right? So I guess we go left because we do like a left. Gotta have a system. The path continues through the undergrowth, but the going becomes more difficult. You soon find it hard to tell which way the path leads, as the whole area is so overgrown. You peer through the woods ahead, and there seems to be little of interest, although an area to your left seems to be unnaturally dark. This could just be a cluster of broadleaf trees blocking out the light, or it could be something else. Do you want to try beating your way through the vegetation towards it, or will you turn round, follow the path back to the fork, and take the other direction? I'm going to try beating my way through the vegetation towards it, because I am intrigued. I love a forest adventure, I really, really do. I think Forest Doom is still probably... Overall, my absolute favourite in terms of 
playing. There's other ones that I like more for the way in which they've been written and the cleverness of the design, but I do really love Forest of Doom. You pick your way through the woods towards the shaded area. The thick vegetation makes it impossible for you to travel in a straight line, and you find yourself turning this way and that to pick up the easiest route. Eventually, you reach the shadowy patch and discover, to your disappointment, that it is a tight thicket of tall heaven-stripped trees, their leaves desperately thirsting for the sunlight from above. You turn back towards the path, but where is it? You have no way of knowing which way you've come from, and your eyes scan the wood for familiar signs. Acting on a hunch, you finally set off towards the spot where, you hope, you left the path. Well, that was uh, a nice little way of undercutting the usual magical encounters. Turns out, sometimes, you can't see the trees for the wood. You make your way slowly through the undergrowth. Your progress is very slow. Your bulky body is impeded by branches and vines. The going is both difficult and tiring. And you are not certain which way you should go when all directions look the same. You try various different directions until you find yourself passing a tree which you can remember passing just a short time before. You've been travelling in circles. Your anger builds and you thunder through the foliage. An unnatural click beneath your foot should have been a warning, but in your rage, it's a warning which you choose to ignore. An instant later, the trap has sprung. Your foot has stepped into a rope noose attached to the supple stem of a sapling. The noose tightens around your ankle, and with a whip-like action, you are hoisted into the air until you dangle helplessly from the treetop. Hmm, there's a classic. Also, I seem to recall, basically in Forest of Doom, but I'm not going to... Uh quibble because it is a classic forest encounter your attempts at freeing yourself are all to no avail night comes followed by the morning sunrise birds are beginning to circle round you and you are feeling decidedly weak but in the distant sky a tiny shape comes into view as it comes closer you realize it is not a bird it is much too large to be any living creature and its size eventually frightens off the birds circling above you all right, I'm not dead yet. When it comes close enough for you to see, you can make out its shape clearly, although it is something with which you are not familiar. A huge vessel with billowing sails above it is heading towards you. You watch as it gets closer and closer and eventually stops over you. A pole is lowered over the side. It grabs the rope from which you are hanging and hoists you up to the deck. You are too tired and weak to resist as rough hands shove your neck through the nearby guillotine. This foraging expedition has been most successful. The crew of the galley keep will have a hearty meal tonight. Well, that is disappointing especially as we've already invoked the sausagey finger bookmark rule once i don't think i can really justify a third episode on creature of havoc and i am bound by the rules of the format not to continue past a certain point of death so yeah that was the second half of creature of havoc in a somewhat abbreviated form I obviously will be going back and playing it to completion because it's great. But 
I'll be back in a couple of seconds in your time with some of my closing remarks. Tatty bye. It's hardly surprising that I died. The second half is no less deadly than the first. There's a plethora of traps and sudden death to be had. I don't actually mind that, provided the deaths are interesting and varied, and that is certainly the case here. There's all manner of ways to meet a sudden and untimely end in Creature of Havoc. You can sink into a bog, be eaten by sky pirates, vivisected by esoteric organ harvesters, or turned into a mindless slave by a tricky witch. If you're going to do a deadly book, then you need to make sure that you're providing a bit of entertainment with every death, and Creature of Havoc delivers in spades. I also like the fact that there is a definite second half to this book, because having exhaustively beaten the first half, it was nice to have an obvious reset point where I could go back, start a new character, and just assume that I'd done all right during the the early going. It's actually fairly easy with a good character to get through it, with minimal damage and with minimal loss of luck. So I just create a character, list all the items, reduce their initial luck by one, almost like a save point. I very much like it, especially with a book that is longer than the average. At 460 paragraphs, this really is mammoth by the standards of fighting fantasy. It is proper hard, though. There's a section in the swamp that is completely fatal, unless you have a companion with you, and you have to do something very specific in order to get the chance to even save that companion. And because Steve Jackson is completely obsessed with hidden sections, there are zero clues in the murder swamp that you need someone along to help you survive the murder swamp. Instead, you have to be aware that certain paragraphs have hidden exits if you deduct 52 from them. It's paragraphs ending in a 7. That's a lovely bit of design enabling you to double up on many locations. So there's almost an entire different swamp hiding behind the swamp you initially encounter. It's so cool when you get it right, but at the same time it feels mean-spirited in the extreme not to provide some kind of clue when you die because you really are flailing around in the dark and it is clear that you need to go to the swamp in order to get a particular magical item to give to some horrible old women and so you can end up fruitlessly exhaustively trying to battle your way through only to realize that every single path leads to certain destruction And there are a lot of hidden sections too. It's another book that seems determined to make life hard for the cheaters. It's not even the simple form where you get an item with the number 132 written on it. It's all about adding or subtracting numbers from other numbers in order to make it all even more bewildering. Once again, we see a tremendous concern that some people might be doing it wrong and all must therefore be punished. There are some bits that genuinely landed for me, like the secret swamp made me gasp out loud when I finally managed to find my way into it. And I love the pendant in the first part that helps you find secret doors, because those are by their very nature secret, and it makes sense not to flag them in the text. But there are quite a lot that just feel like 
complication for the sake of complication. The times where it lands, they're amazing, but for the most part, it winds up being a bit of an annoyance. I also think that it's more than just a game design choice, because I think it's trying to retain a sense of immersion, because it can be jarring when a game book describes a scene and then gives you two sensible options that clearly relate to the scene, and then a third option that makes no sense. Why does it matter whether or not I have a parrot, one might ponder, especially given that the room seems to be on fire. Hidden sections help preserve a sense of immersion, and that does have a value, but at the same time, they make it very hard to work out where you went wrong, and so you end up having to brute force it like one of those extraordinarily difficult point-and-click adventures from the 80s and 90s where eventually you would just go up to every interactable object and rub everything in your pockets against them in the hope that one of them would turn out to be right. And so there is a value to the book asking you about parrots at a moment of high drama because it means that you'll be looking out for bird cages on your subsequent playthroughs. And that's the crux of the matter. Subsequent playthroughs. Because there's actually nothing more immersion-breaking than being able to do the same story twice and make a different decision. If you want to really immerse someone in a story, the thing to do is to constrain their choices, but write it really well so that it feels real. Constrain them enough and suddenly you've written a novel. That's what you've done. You've written a novel. That's great for the suspension of disbelief, but it's no longer a game. Those things of being a game and a book, they're in constant tension. Now, a role-playing game gives the characters much more freedom, but that comes at the cost of literary merit. I'm not saying that role-playing games aren't art. Far from it. But I am saying that role-playing sessions don't have literary merit because they aren't literature. They are, for me, collaborative performance art pieces. What game books bring to the table is that combination of literary merit with gaming. But they are still games, and that means sometimes you have to make a sacrifice of literary merit in order to make a better game. And I can't help but feel that is a sacrifice maybe Creature of Havoc should have been a bit happier to make. Now, don't get me wrong, Creature of Havoc has one of the best stories I've encountered in fighting fantasy. It has really interesting themes of humanity and monstrousness and the othering of outsiders and the denouement where it becomes clear that the entire story that's been told is intensely connected that is a satisfying moment however as a game it is arcane deeply arbitrary and seems to actively hate the player for daring to make imperfect decisions i haven't explored it exhaustively but my instinct is that there is literally one perfect path through and if there is any forgiveness anywhere in it there's not a great deal if you wander from the path you will either die immediately that will very often happen or miss something vital that will cause you to die later i will say that creature of havoc balances the many instant deaths by not doing too much chipping away at your stats it's fairly generous with luck and very generous with stamina and there aren't many places where you can lose skill. The fights are mostly very doable. You aren't generally going to be hemorrhaging health if you've rolled a decent character. And as with many of these 
if you haven't rolled a decent character, you're just not going to get through. And I think that's a necessary and interesting balancing factor. If you're going to be serving up a buffet of instant death, the least you can do is bottomless sprite refills on the side, where stamina gains are obviously a soft drink in this metaphor. If it sounds like I'm down on Creature of Havoc, I'm really not, or at least not much. It's pushing the envelope. It's daring to be completely different to anything that came before, and as a pure act of creativity, stands at the pinnacle of what is possible within the classic fighting fantasy milieu. It's intensely memorable for just how much it is chafing at the constraints of the format and how hard it is trying to tell a unique story. I love how it interrogates fantasy cliches. I love how much it feels like part of that odd British desire to undercut and satirise genre conventions that we actually love. I'm a big 2000 AD fan and this feels like a story that would be entirely at home in the pages of the galaxy's greatest comic. Also, the contrast in tone and feel between part one and part two is really strong. I hope that came over in the playthrough. I spoke in part one about the power of inverting the traditional structure so that the dungeon is not at the end of the adventure, but at the beginning. And when the dungeon is so expansive and claustrophobic at the same time, the feeling of being released from captivity underground and suddenly being able to pick a direction or a landmark and just head towards it, that is a very powerful experience in the game. Also, you should totally look at a map of the dungeon because the design and the layout is a thing of beauty. There are some great locations in the second half of the game, although none quite as well fleshed out as the dungeon environment which we open with. There's lots of different settings and you get to do a tour of lots of different ones, which I definitely appreciate. Alongside that, it's not just aesthetic changes, but how you react to the world changes as well. So... The early game rewards you for acting like a brute, but when you emerge into the world above, you've got more faculties of thought available to you, and it feels like you're able to take a more considered approach, although the book never lets you forget that you're a monster with a monster's appetites. Indeed, it feels like all the humans you come across are antagonists just waiting to be eaten. There's a vital part where siding with a down-at-heel half-orc in a fight is the only right option for progressing. It's the uh, the character you need to befriend in order to survive the swamp. There's another nice little bit of design where if you mess about in that village for too long, the half-orc will already be dead when you go to leave. So there's a time pressure on it. And I love time pressures and the use of the passage of time in adventure game books because it's quite hard to do. As well as that village, you've also got the village of Dree, a deadly and dreary location full of hideous biological experiments, kind of like failed iterations of the very monster that you yourself have been turned into, and a lot of cruel hags. It's like going on holiday to Barnsley by a mistake. It's just awful. The aesthetic is reductive, in terms of all the evil women being elderly and not conventionally attractive, but it was 1986. It's also just a big old trap. Nothing good happens in the village of Dree, much like in Barnsley. It's a place of unrepentant evil. The fact that no one is frightened of you when you rock up, that acts as a sort of clue that this is not a good place. You are just part of the scenery, which is really weird. 
In the other village, people are terrified of you and rush to hide or fight. It's another great use of contrasts. There's a lot going on in terms of the plot, and almost all of the rumours, the 20-odd pages of intro at the start of the book, get paid off at some point in the action. But it does mean that it can be quite hard to keep track of everything going on, remembering all those little clues and bits of foreshadowing. It's even harder when you're trying to beat the book to a deadline. I don't think I got to experience quite the best side of it because I needed to beat it in a single day thanks to various commitments that I've got. I recommend not doing that and playing this one slowly and deliberately, definitely making a map for all that I consider that to be basically heresy and making notes as you go of anything that strikes you as interesting. There's so much in there that it can be a bit overwhelming and I think writing stuff down highly recommended. Given how complicated everything else is, it's a relief that the combat is basically always straightforward. By putting in one big new rule, the death blow into the combat, that already makes the combat that already makes the combat feel fresh and exciting. There's not really any need to add spot rules on top. Most of the fights are pretty standard, although there are quite a lot of multiple opponents as well. And that's a great call because the multiple opponents is where the death blow mechanic really shines. There's one specific fight I want to call out. It's towards the end. It's actually a trap disguised as a fight. You come across a skeleton creature. It's fairly easy to beat, except that if you don't flee the room immediately, the bones reform and you have to fight it again. Beat it this time and you then have to fight it for a third time. And then you notice that on beating that, it sends you back to the fight you've just come from and so it becomes clear that you will be fighting the skeleton until you get unlucky enough that it kills you however long that takes it's really really cool and as soon as you spot the repeating pattern you think oh no i'm dead but at the same time it's going to take an awful long time you can sort of almost imagine that fighting tooth and nail the last point of stamina in the doomed hope that somehow this will be different and that you won't get sent right back to the start of the fight. I just love it. I think that's a great set piece and a great way to kill you without outright saying you are dead. Okay, that's probably enough rambling about Creature of Havoc. It's well worth your time and effort, but do be prepared to die early, die often, and be somewhat frustrated at times. That is all for this episode. I'm going to be back hopefully in a couple of weeks with a bonus episode that's been on the cards for literally ages. Oh, and I forgot to mention at the start, but I've got a new EP out at the moment. Yes, not content with being a hack podcaster, a hack writer and a hack game designer, I'm also a hack musician. I mostly make experimental noise and drone music, but every once in a while I like to record something with an actual melody and my new EP recorded under the name Sorrow Tree is four tracks of Dungeon Synth which is essentially the ginger stepchild of dark ambient, classical and black metal. Imagine a dark fantasy film soundtrack recorded on a child's keyboard from the 80s and you're probably near the mark. If that sounds appealing then you can download the EP for free at Malesperi, M-A-L-E-S-P eri.bandcamp.com where-graves-r-empty or just google sorrow tree where graves are empty and that should take you 
to it. You will also get a chance to hear one of the tracks from the EP, which will be replacing the closing music for this episode. If you want to get in touch with me, you can do so by emailing hjdoomretrofun, all one word, at gmail.com. I love getting emails. Thank you so much for listening. Take care. I'll see you soon. Thank you.